Welcome to Threads of Healing, conversations with the wayward and the wise. This is your host, Dr. Ila Manga, coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Threads of Healing is the space for exploring what healing could mean by having deep conversations with wisdom keepers, doctors, artists, storytellers, fact finders and visionaries. We bring awareness to the voices who have answered their call to heal and to discover a new way of living, breathing and being in the world and will inspire you to do the same. So today, I am so thrilled and honored to be talking to a woman I have deep respect and love for. She's a highly accomplished, courageous, wise human being whose voice is making waves and inspiring a new paradigm of leadership across the African continent. She merges insights from her own life experience with tools from neuroscience, psychology, and ontology in her work as a leadership practitioner and speaker to inspire courageous, compassionate, and conscious leadership. She believes that Africa will only get the future it deserves if leaders can access their highest courage and most authentic power. Today, she's speaking to us from Harare, where she is currently based. My friend Rachel Adams, welcome to Threads of Healing. Thank you so much, Ila, for that incredible and generous introduction. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So I've really been looking forward to today's conversation because, you know, we've been having so many conversations over the years and ones that constantly inspire me. You inspire me. Uh, But what I really appreciate about you, just in the way that you relate to your work and the world, is your commitment to understanding before offering a solution for something, before offering a a way forward or a formula, you really spend a great deal of time um, to the process of understanding why things are the way they are. Absolutely. I, I have always, ever since I was a child, been intrigued by human beings the way that we are with ourselves, with each other, the way that we make choices and why we make those choices, the way we choose to build um, the reality that we call our life. And so because of that, because of that intrigue, I noticed that over time, I started to also be interested in when I can deepen the understanding, what could I bring as a possible insight about how differently we could believe and construct and do life and be in life in a way that serves us better. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always so desperate to have the best possible experience with the people that I was with, but also just with my own self. Um, in a way that was supportive to the best outcomes. So this has been um, an interesting journey that I've walked um, with regard deepening understanding and then because of that being able to offer up some solutions or some co-solutions about what would make our human experience better. 
Yeah. Wow. You know, perhaps that's what inspired you to study anthropology. Was that because that was your first step in your academic life, right? Absolutely. You know, I was when I started university, which was in 2003, I knew that I was always a humanities and arts focused person because that had always been my interest ever since I can remember. But I had no idea what I was going to study. So I was shopping for courses at the University of Cape Town and I walked into an anthropology lecture um, and literally in the first class, the professor, I never forget her, Sally Frankenthal, said, everything you know about life is a construct. And my entire life, I remember sitting there and going, what did she just say? Did she just say that everything I know and have experienced and have believed is a construct and that they were groups of people or societies or belief systems that sort of sat down and put these things together. Because when she said that, the implication was, of course, that we can change that. If it's a construct, it's Mm -hmm. not set in stone. It can be changed. And for me, as as I've just said, change, the idea of change, of transformation, of progress has always been something that has been intriguing to me. So that was that was it. I, I was hooked and I did had never heard the term, the word anthropology before that point. And literally I carried on to do my undergrad in social anthropology, my my honors in um, social anthropology. And then my, I started a master's in practical anthropology before I moved to do African studies with an anthropological focus. But as you can see, it became, it literally became an obsession of mine um, Mm -hmm. and life-changing. And this deep curiosity constantly informs your learning and your growth. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in your current reality, so you're, you're now in Harare, and, and so this is, you know, an interesting time to be back in Harare. It's where you grew up in Zimbabwe, right? Yeah. Yes, I and, grew up in Gweru in Zimbabwe. Right. And, you know, your life's path has taken you all over the world, and you were working at a very prestigious American university a few years ago. And at that time, just felt that it was time to come home. That must have been an incredible process for you. What was happening in your being at that time? You know, so absolutely, there I was at an Ivy League heading up what was called and is called an Africa initiative at that Ivy League. You know, in many ways, from a career perspective, feeling like I had reached a peak, uh, not the peak, but a peak, um, doing very well financially, doing very well in terms of building a powerful network and doing powerful and impactful work, but feeling like it wasn't true to my highest calling Um, and constantly having to be in a conversation with myself about, is this really it? Is this what is this what your life amounts to? Is, it, is this what your deepest yearning is? And I remember being at an event in Rwanda. Um, this was in 2014, you know, and, you know, you are in conversation with change makers across the African continent, people who are doing um, some of their deepest and best work. 
And I remember sort of having a freeze moment where I thought to myself, everything that I'm saying right now is not representative of the future that I believe in, is not representative of what I believe is my highest calling in terms of my gift on this planet. Mm -hmm. And becoming clear in that moment, I had to quit my job and that I had to come back home. And really, you ask about beingness in my emotional ecosystem I had been living in guilt for a very long time at this point. It was this sense that I was gallivanting across the world in countries that were doing relatively well. I'd lived in South Africa, in the United Kingdom, in the U.S., and feeling like my own country was probably in the deepest need Hmm. for my gift and my work. And so I just sort of felt, isn't it... You know, in, in, my, in my culture, one of the things that happens when you're born is that they cut off the umbilical cord and they bury it into the soil. Mm-hmm. And the reasoning behind that is that the soil will always call you back. And it just felt like I had to come back home. It felt that I had to, after 15 years of being abroad, I had to come back home. And Zimbabwe was not and is not in the best socioeconomic political condition but there was just a knowing despite the material environment that I had to come back home. And so I quit my, I resigned, uh, gave them a few months notice. And by April, 2015, I packed my bags and come back to Harare, to Zimbabwe. Wow. Just two things that really strike me about what you've just said. And the first is uh, this word guilt. You know, I, I often tell people that guilt has no role to play. But just listening to you speak, sometimes guilt is a little calling for us to live life in with more integrity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, our emotions are in themselves a pathway. They are often showing us more deeply things that we might not be seeing, but that we might, might not be perceiving. And because I woke up every morning just with this uncomfortable feeling that I wasn't in the right place and that there could be so much more that I could be doing, had I not listened and sort of done the bombastic thing that we sometimes do or get over it, you know, oh, you're not being grateful for where you are and how many people would want this kind of opportunity. I would have really missed uh, an important message that the entirety of my beingness was was inviting me into, which is to go deeper, to go deeper with my work. Yeah. Another word that strikes me in this conversation is the word courage. Did it feel like you needed to muster up courage or tap into courage to listen to that voice to come back home? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> because, because the idea of coming back home, it wasn't as though it was sort of a skipping and dancing into this new possibility, it was very scary because as I've said, and as you know, Zimbabwe is in a space in which healing is so needed. Um, The economy has been ravaged. The the, the institutions don't work, you know. So, um, you know, at the time, I remember power cuts were, were rampant, right? So you wouldn't have power for... 10, which then became 18 hours. I mean, it was long stretches of time of just really inconvenience. And so um, it wasn't as though while, while there was a 
a sense of being called into this deeper work, which is the work that I'm doing now in leadership development, I also felt a deep fear. I also felt a deep hesitation. Um, and, And so courage was necessary. It was so important. And, you know, when I think of the word courage from the French cœur, which is heart, Um, I think it was an invitation to engage with not only my head brain, but also my heart brain and my gut brain to be in relationship with all of that information and to say, even though there's no evidence that this will work, it is what I'm being called into at this moment. And so I just listened and, and trusted that both the universe and my gift together would, would pave the way that was necessary. Wow. How did you come into this work, Rachel? (laughs) So really it was watching life, watching myself dancing with life and watching others dancing with life. I was born into an environment with lots of questions, with lots of um, pain, um, with a sense of being, I was I was born feeling very deeply disconnected um, from the experiences that I was having, um, experienced some traumatic things as a child as well. Um, and of course, I mean, there were happy moments, of course, as with everything, right? I was There was some happiness and joy, but there was also a deep sense of being disconnected. And so I just wanted to understand mm. why... What, what is this? What mm-hmm. is life? What is this experience of disconnect? Why has it happened? Is it inevitable? Or is it something that can be changed? And I remember it culminated when I was about, I believe it was, I was about 27 or 28 at the time, being at a training for a course that I was becoming a facilitator in and literally realizing that I'd never experienced with any depth, the emotion of happiness and just weeping on the floor and going, why don't I know happiness? Why don't I know myself? Why do I seem to have this very detached relationship with my body, with myself, with others? You know, why do I struggle with commitment? Why do I struggle with self-doubt? And, you know, so there were all of these things and I just wanted to solve this. And so I feel like my life's journey led me to this work. I feel like I was being set up in many ways for this work. And so I have started to see the gift in all of the childhood experiences. I've often said that in the wounding is also often the gifting. And so when I stopped focusing on, you know, how much pain I'd experienced and how much disconnection I had, I also started to see, wait, this is an invitation. There's an opening here mm-hmm. that's also available to me if I take it. And so that's how I came into leadership development. That's how I came into coaching and doing work around human transformation and personal mastery and, and steepened self-awareness because it saved my life. It, mm-hmm. it really brought me out of a space of living life with lethargy, living life fatalistically and really feeling like I had such a, a an opportunity with deepened presence and agency to construct life in a way that was deeply meaningful mm. and happy for me. Mm, mm. And so that, right. Um, and that choice point 
Rachel, or series of choice points. Are you aware of what those were? Was that a conscious choice in that moment to say, hang on, okay, this is something that I can take responsibility for. This is something that I can actually change. Were there people or experiences that really catalyzed the process for you? Absolutely. I mean, two stand out for me really powerfully. When I was 16 years old, I remember crying into my pillow, which had become a habit because I had really developed a victim uh, mindset, a victim mentality. And so I, 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 I cried a lot, you know, at night, um, just lamenting life and what it was. And I remember one night while I was in one of these sessions, these nighttime sessions of mine, it was as though another wiser part of myself was asking me, why are you crying? What are these tears about? And I remember in that moment recognizing that firstly, actually my life was starting, many of the things I'd experienced in my childhood were starting to become less and less prevalent. You know, I wasn't feeling as emotionally neglected or I wasn't being beat as much. I wasn't feeling like I was experiencing the kind of abuses I had as a child. Um, but I had become a, this identity, I'd become wrapped up in it. So I remember something wiser inside of me saying, but what are you crying about now? You know, it's as though you keep insisting on this pain and this suffering. It's as though you keep inviting it back, even when there's an opportunity for healing. And I remember in that moment saying, what is that part of me? What is that part of me that mm. seems untouched mm. by all of these experiences? Wow. And so I woke up to the fact that even when we go through life, there is a wise part of ourselves that is untouched, unharmed, and available to support us. And that's what I started tapping into. It was at that time very amateurish. I didn't understand what, what this really was. Now in my older years, I understand that this is our soul. This is our spirit, that which contains mm. us. That in fact, you know, there are also parts of our our in the power of our psychology, you know, sometimes psychologists talk about the fact that we have many selves, that they, there was a self inside of me that had been able to maintain itself and its integrity and not be touched by these negative experiences uh, or maybe was touched by these negative experiences in a very different way, in a way that created wisdom. So that was one aspect. And many, much of my work has become about reminding people of this, that, you know, we have the ability to heal ourselves, not even from outside mechanisms, which are helpful to remind us, but ultimately from what is already inside of us. And the second experience that, that really woke me up to the possibility of the fullness, um, the fullness of our beingness was when I left religion. Um, so I was born. I was born into a Christian into Christian tradition. I was initially Catholic and then Anglican and then became Pentecostal. I even trained as a pastor. Really? Um, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. In my early 20s, I graduated from pastoral school. So I'm actually a trained pastor. And um, 
And I remember in 2003 feeling that, in fact, this is something that had started in 2001, feeling like the way in which religion was constructed, at least my religion, felt very limiting. It felt that God was much bigger than these names and these constructs and these descriptions that we used. You know, I often struggled, for example, with the idea of God being a jealous God, because certainly at my lowest point, I am jealous, right? In my in my sort of lowest self, I'm a jealous being. And I couldn't understand why God had been given this lowly emotion of jealousy. I didn't quite understand it. And so I started to question a lot about religion and a lot about the constructs of religion. And I remember in 2013, I mean, in 2003, literally getting on my knees and making my last prayer to God and saying, God, this is the last time I am doing a ritualistic prayer. From now on, I seek to experience you through everything. Mm. And that was the last time I went to church, except, you know, now I go sometimes for funerals and, and weddings and, you know, such, such things. But it was the last time I went to church. It was the last time I belonged to a religion. And it was the first time I understood that we are never separate from God. We are never separate from source, which is what I believe some of these rituals had taught me, that, that God was this entity that you continually sought after, that mm. you continually sought to be connected to. But I started to understand that actually there is a oneness between source and self. And that also became a big part of my, my tradition now, even as I do this work, this deepened sense of connection to everything. Mm, wow, that's so beautiful, Rachel. But isn't that what we do as human beings? We kind of externalize our um, agency or power to an external source, another person, a guru, a, even a god that we see as something outside of ourselves. And we, we in that process, disconnect from that wisdom that actually resides within ourselves. You know, absolutely. It's interesting. I, I think that a lot of our human philosophies are steeped in this idea of separation, this illusion of separation from others, from God, from source, mm -hmm. and, even, and even more dangerously from ourselves, right? And so I... I really have been so energized by this idea and this experience that I've had, which is that I am not separate. I am made from source and therefore I am source and coming into relationship with that I amness. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember in 2003 even being clear that from now on, I understand that every breath that I take is a prayer. And this, you know, this was in 2003, 2004. I was intrigued last year coming across the work of um, Richard Vaughan, who is a, uh, a priest. Yes. And he, yes. And, and he talked about the fact that I think in the Jewish tradition, you know, the word Yahweh, which is also a word that we would, uh, uh, the name of God that we was, would use in the Christian tradition as well from the Old Testament, is that if you think about Yahweh, it's very much like breathing in and breathing out. Mm -hmm. And so each time we breathe in and each time we breathe out, it's that powerful declaration of Yahweh right? And it's that declaration of the source is the I am that I am, but I too 
am the I am that I am. And for me, that integration mm. into all that is has probably been the most impactful and powerful thing that has ever happened to me. Wow, my Rachel. So how do you translate this understanding and knowingness and connection into the work that you do with leaders? Absolutely. So my work is in leadership development. It's in transformation. So what I seek to do firstly is to help people remember themselves. And I believe this to be my most sacred work. I believe that a lot of the disconnections that we have in the world today, a lot of the suffering that we have is that people don't remember themselves. They don't remember the full power of their beingness. They don't remember the impact um, of what it means to have action in the world. And they also don't remember most deeply what they came to the earth to do. And so for me, this is the first port of call. So when I do coaching work, for example, with my clients, is to just walk back the journey of, are you on the right path? So many adults I experience who are very deeply unhappy and then pass on that unhappiness like a contagion to the rest of society, especially the more power they have, right? The more influence they have in the world is to ask them, are you doing what you have business doing? Because many of us are in work we have no business being in. And of course, it's a part and outcome of our education systems, of the pressures of society, what it means to feel like you are doing something that has status and respect. Um, and so I, I, I desire to help people return to that simple childlike way of being where they're being true to who they are. Mm-hmm. And then having done that, to then reconstruct the way we formulate relationships with others. So what does it mean to remember to be in love with others? Um, I have been in, in a lot of ways when I do organizational work, you know, what does it mean for us to be with each other as we work versus doing power over each other versus, you know, cunningly doing these maneuvers that we've started to call corporate politics, you know, that take away from from the fullness of what we could produce because of our gifts and our talents. And ultimately, I hope that that work creates a world in which people are only creating products, services that are for the good of humanity. So it's really, if you think about it, those circles of leading self, leading others Mm -hmm. and leading institutions or leading change, if we have a deepened sense of self-awareness, we can manifest in the world with deep respect and regard for others. And because of that, we can then co-create a world in which we, um, we, see, we see each other deeply, we understand each other deeply, and therefore because of that are able to evolve with each other deeply in a way that serves all of us. Mm. Wow. It's profound. So, you know, just where we both are in, in our work, in living in Southern Africa, working with so much trauma, so much pain. Rachel, what, is the, what do you believe is the entry point for our healing process? Where do we begin with this collective healing process? 
So I believe it's firstly about being even able to articulate that there's healing needed. I think one of the things I observe that is true of our cultures, and I speak very generically because, of course, I know cultures are very different, but certainly what I observe with many of my clients, and it doesn't matter from which part of the continent they come from, there's almost no language Um, And when we don't have language, how do we understand, right? And so sometimes there's a sweeping under the carpet of what is broken, what is wounded, what needs fixing. So there's an invitation, which is what I often do with my clients for courageous conversations, for naming the things that have wounded us, um, giving them tonality, and then saying, so what do we do about it? So I believe that that's the first The second thing that I believe that is important is to start to seek out modalities of healing that call us versus what we've been told, Mm. right? And so so for me, I've found healing in the what I would have thought would have been the strangest of places, you know, so you will know because of our work together that when I met you, you introduced me to conscious breathing. And it was, it was surprising for me and yet it also felt familiar mm-hmm. because there was a resonance there was a part of me that knew that surely breath is an important part of my healing right. <laughs> but had never I'd never connected to it with the language that you gave me um, and it's interesting because one of the things I knew from my childhood experiences is that I had stopped breathing deeply because I was so nervous and so fearful, I had held breath often. Um, And that created many blockages in my system. And you gave that language, right? So it's allowing ourselves to find the modalities of healing that really speak to us versus Mm -hmm. what we've been told. So I know many people who feel like I can't heal in this way because it's not correct. You know, in my society, it's not acceptable. We limit ourselves to finding our teachers, to finding our healers, to finding our own capacity to self-heal mm-hmm. um, when we do this. You know, I think, I think another, another is, to, is to, and probably very similar to the second point I've made, I feel like we need to stop having taboos around, around certain conversations. Um, You know, so one of the biggest healing opportunities I believe this continent has is that of healing hierarchy. Mm. Um, But our culture, our cultural conversations, our cultural constructs sometimes don't allow us to have that conversation. So where I come from, for example, it is taboo to correct or to tell a person who is older than you. It is frowned upon. Um, Yet, yet what's interesting is that if you look more deeply into older African culture, not modern African culture, this was acceptable. In fact, as far as I understand from some of our teachers, the youngest and the least powerful spoke first before the older and the more powerful spoke. I believe it's the dance between our colonial realities and and the dance that did with our cultures that has turned us into these people who are afraid of speaking truth to power, of speaking truth to each other, big part of our pain and suffering as societies where we have political and economic systems that don't give us dignity. And so I believe that we have to take away the taboos. We have to revisit culture and say, 
you know, what is light in our culture and what is shadow in our cultures and how can we heal all of this so that we can emerge as our fullest selves. So, and I think if we can do that and, and you'll see in all of these days, that thread of courage, if yes. we can do that, if we can connect to not only the egoic, but also to our heartbeats, to our instincts, to our sense of true identity that, you know, Aham Brahmasmi, that mantra of I am universe, I am cosmos, I am with all. If we can start to connect to that um, more than just the egoic, I believe that we can set ourselves on that path of healing as individuals and as a continent. It feels to me as if your work is around transforming leaders into healers, because really that's the role of the leader isn't it? Absolutely. I, I so love what you said. And I remember actually coming to this realization that the work of leadership is sacred mm. because you hold so much possibility for either contraction or expansion when you mm-hmm. need and and so everything that you decide, everything that you choose, everything that you pay attention to expands in an incredibly powerful way um, that it can either heal or it can damage. And I think when, when leaders understand this, so one of the questions that I was, that I've been grappling with uh, over my entire leadership development career is why do good people become bad leaders, mm-hmm. right? You know, many of many of the leaders we grapple with in our lives are someone's favorite uncle, someone's, you know, loved mother, somebody's best friend. Um, and yet when it comes to the complexity of broader human dynamics, they become problematic as a leader. Mm. And I believe it's because they haven't tapped into the full responsibility of what it means to lead. You know, I always say there's a difference between the seat of leadership and the burden of leadership. The seats wow. are, the, are the perks, you know, the perks that come <laughs> with leadership. You know, you can, you are, you, everywhere you go, people are uh, recognizing your power and your contribution. They're applauding it. They're rewarding it. But the burden is to understand that because of you, in fact, in ontology, we talk about the archetype of the king or the queen whose responsibility is to create fairness and order and clarity and a setting and a maintaining of boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that archetype reminds us that with leadership comes great responsibility. Um, and so I love what you're saying. If, if leaders understood that they can either heal or they can destroy, mm-hmm. I think we would, we would enter into this, this conversation very differently. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing so much work during this time in, you know, in lockdown through the whole Corona period and coaching so many people, coaching leaders, running workshops, doing interviews. What do you feel is emerging, arising for people through this time? So one of the things that became very clear to me right at the beginning is that COVID has been a powerful gift because it has brought to the surface all of the constructs 
You know, it has made us look at life and say, why do we even do this? Why is this even necessary? (laughs) You know, so I I believe that if we're paying attention, we will let go of the wastage. We will let go of the attention that we put on the things that actually don't really matter Mm -hmm. and focus on that which does. Um, You know, it has brought to the surface inequality and the role that inequality plays in dehumanizing all of us because we think that, you know, it it takes away dignity from only those who suffer. It takes away dignity from all of us. Um, And I believe COVID-19 has been so powerful in in bringing that to the surface. I was a part of, um, I was listening to a conversation as part of a series of conversations I entered into at the beginning of the the, at the beginning of the COVID period, and Frederick Laloux, who is the right, the author of the book um, um, "Reinventing Organizations," spoke about how it's interesting how, you know, COVID nineteen will kill one percent of the the people that it infects, and that what's actually interesting is that humanity has been destroying the, the planet at about the same rate wow. every year. Wow. 1%. So so he said, and, you know, I haven't researched this myself, but it really resonated for me. You know, he said 50% of big animals have been killed over the last 50 years Mm -hmm. because of human activity, because of economic activity, 75% of insects. And so what does that mean if we looked at COVID as a mirror of who we are being? Mm -hmm. You know, so I am an ontological coach, right? And in ontology, one of the the premises of of, 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 um, of ontology is that we are always co-creating the experiences that we are having. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if we accept that to be true, how is COVID-19 a co-creation? How have we co-created these outcomes? And if we were to accept that, you know, what would be possible? Um, and there's something so powerful about removing the cloak of victimhood um, and asking yourself, where, where am I in this dance? You know, where, where am I very naughtily and sneakily creating this reality that I'm experiencing and then claiming victimhood and then claiming surprise mm. when, the outcomes, when the outcomes arrive? Um, and so I believe COVID has been a powerful teacher of how we come into relationship with co-creation, but also start to really look straight in the eye at some of the injustices that we've, we have come to accept as normal in our lives and that are not normal at all. So it's an awakening in many ways. Mm-hmm. And also something that you said um, that really, really stayed with me that I thought was so profound is our responsibility to create through this time. And, you know, we all have the gift of creativity and it is our responsibility to continue to create. Absolutely. And it came, Ila, from your powerful conversation in your podcast, conversation with Ritendongara. And I was listening to her talking about the moon cycle we are in at this time and had been over the last weeks before I listened to that podcast, been grappling with you know, one of my friends was in prison at the time here in Zimbabwe because he had spoken out against the government. You know, I started to feel like, what does it matter? You know, what does anything that I say even matter? So I'm here telling people to live, you know, their fullest authentic power. Meanwhile, there's all this abuse and prejudice in the world. What is the point? 
and I was really feeling downtrodden and feeling sorry for myself and feeling like a victim. And when she talked about the dance between creation and destruction and always being in relationship with the fact that this is life, mm-hmm. it just awoke inside of me this thing that, this realization that when forces of destruction are at the, their fullest force, we as people who are workers of light and of creativity should also radically even, you know, bring up our vibrations and our presence and our being with that darkness, because otherwise we let it overwhelm us. And, and my business on this earth is not to be in conversation with what other people are doing in destruction. It's to be in conversation with the power of my gift Mm-hmm. Um, and to be in conversation with what that gift is has given me responsibility to do. And so I realized, why have you stopped? Why have you stopped? Why have you stopped talking? Why have you stopped creating? Why have you stopped reminding people of the light? Um, and, I, and I believe this, is, this has been one of my most powerful awakenings during this time. Um, we, we, when we have gifts, we have a responsibility to continue in them and to be deeply present with them, regardless of what is happening around us. Wow. Wow, Rachel. I mean, in every conversation with you is just so deeply enriching and inspiring. You're a gift to me. And I think that everybody who is listening to us today will leave feeling the way I do every time I speak to you. It's just, wow, you really, really. Uh, full my heart. So thank you so much for talking to me today. And I look forward to more conversations like this. And if people would like to engage with you and your work, they can find you on your website. Absolutely. So our website is www.narachileadership.com. And you can also find us on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Narachi Leadership. You can also follow me on Rachel Nyarazo Adams on the same, the same platform. Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for listening to Threads of Healing, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ila Manga. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to leave a review and tell us what you think. If you have found this podcast inspiring and useful, and you know someone who would too, please feel free to pass this along.